You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. And I'm going to talk to you guys twice today, uh, God help you, um, about atopic dermatitis. And uh, we'll start first by talking about the state of affairs with comorbidities, uh, because it's, along with the therapeutic landscape, an incredibly dynamic time in the field of atopic dermatitis. And uh, I started as an attending in 2000, and uh, we really didn't have any new molecules therapeutically between the topical calcineurin inhibitors, protopic, uh, elidel, tacrolimus, pimecrolimus, up until this last year. Um, and so a full span of 17, 18 years with no new molecules, and just in the last year we've had two. Uh, so therapeutically there have been advances. In terms of comorbidities, there's been an incredible uh, amount of uh, new literature, and I think the challenge for me, and one I hope to communicate to you guys is, what do we have to pay attention to? You know, we have 15-minute visits, right? Um, how do we get through all we have to get through with atopic dermatitis and incorporate all this new information? So I think it helps to know what's real and what's not. And that's, of course, a dynamic state. Um, so we will talk about uh, the impact of atopic dermatitis. One of my least favorite expressions is it's just eczema. Uh, because for any of you who've taken care of kids with uh, even moderate but certainly severe eczema, that just is an oxymoron. Just eczema is, uh, does it no justice because it can have an incredible impact on the lives of not just the kids but the families as well. We'll review the old association so that my, my title of the talk, Marching On or whatever that was, has to do with atopic march. You know, food allergies and eczema as a baby, asthma as a child, hay fever as an adult. Some kids just march in an orderly fashion through all of those. Some don't. Um, but we'll talk a bit about those, but we'll also talk about some of the newer uh, associations and, again, try to sort out what's real from what's not. I'm sure all of you are aware of the sort of exciting new approach to primary prevention of peanut allergy. Uh, that may seem like a different topic, but who was that study population in which that, that information came from? Patients with severe eczema uh, or patients with egg allergy. So I do think there's some significant overlap with what we are going to talk about here today. And then we'll talk about um, things like anemia, obesity, uh, which are newly described, and I'm not so sure we need to spend some of that precious 15 minutes talking about it just yet, but you will be the judge of that. Well, I was part of a group about three or four years ago of the American Academy of Dermatology would put together consensus guidelines on the management of atopic dermatitis, and this was one of those publications. And as far as comorb comorbidities went, this was what we came up with. Physicians should be aware of and assess for conditions associated with atopic dermatitis, such as rhinitis, conjunctivitis, asthma, food allergies, that march we talked about, sleep disturbance, depression, and other neuropsychiatric conditions, and it's recommended that physicians discuss them with the patient as part of their treatment and management plan when appropriate. That was it. Nothing about obesity, nothing about anemia, uh, that was it. So I'm gonna to talk to you a bit about things, this is now four years later, uh, which may supplement that recommendation. So here is our first ARS question, which I didn't even intend to be an ARS question. It was meant to be a rhetorical slide, but Brian kindly turned it into one, so thank you. Um, and so how many comorbidities have been linked to atopic dermatitis in 2018? And we'll start the clock. Six, nine, 15, or 20 plus. Oh, it's catchy music, I like it. Okay, and so there are your answers. And that's a nice spread, that's great, because that sort of gives us, uh, kind of makes me feel like I've got a reason to be here to talk about some of these things. Um, six, uh, not as many people uh, put, um, and then the rest was fairly evenly divided. And look here, that's the list. That's crazy, isn't it? I don't even, I haven't even bothered to count these, but um, let's go through at least the first couple. Food allergies, asthma, hay fever, that's the march. Contact dermatitis, sleep disturbance. Um, these are ones we've known about for some time. Um, the newer ones, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Is that real? Do we need to talk about our patients with that? Autism, 
obesity, anemia, vitiligo, alopecia areata, on and on, till at the very bottom, what do I put? Am I just being obnoxious by putting et cetera, kind of? Um, but I put it there because it reminded me of something that I got interested in a few years ago, along with the rest of the world, which is vitamin D. And in my case, I was interested in vitamin D as it related to atopic dermatitis. There was a while for, you know, five, six, seven years ago, you couldn't open a journal in any field, cardiology, rheumatology, endocrinology, whatever it was, without finding vitamin D linked to some outcome. And so that's when you start wondering, you know, is this real or are we just defining associations that aren't real? And this sort of picture that I show you here reminded me of a, of a, paper that I read around that time with relation to vitamin D. And here is the figure from that paper, and it was a very reputable journal. And as you can see, I think I have a, a pointer here. So you can see vitamin D deficiency causes, you know, sun, sunscreen, melanin, latitude, winter, all those things, and then consequences, schizophrenia, depression, infections, uh, pulmonary outcomes, uh, autoimmune outcomes, muscle weakness, on and on. And then, of course, osteoporosis, the one that we've linked forever. And then what about cancer? Breast, colon, prostate, etc. There's just been so many linked to vitamin D deficiency that they just put etc., uh, which, again, to me makes me wonder which of these are real and which are not. And so that sort of uh, harked back to that. And they didn't even, I think the astute uh, among you will have noticed, that they didn't even call out the most insidious adverse effect associated with vitamin D here, which is, of course, the hemi-mullet. That's, that's not as much written about, but it's, it's really devastating. So I want to talk to you a bit about the ones that are highlighted here. So we're going to talk a bit about the march, not much. Those are the ones you know about and have known about, but there's been some new information that I do think is worth delving into. We'll talk a bit about sleep disturbance and quality of life impact, just because, again, it gets to that issue of just eczema, which drives me crazy. Um, if, if kids with moderate to severe eczema are losing 2.1 hours of sleep a night, which they are, and their parents are losing 1.9 hours of sleep a night, which they are, based on good studies, that's a significant impact on the quality of life. That's not just eczema, that's just crankiness. We're also gonna talk about some of these newer things. Oops, I wanna go back. Let's, oh, I'm going, I'm not going, let's see if I can go back here. There you go. So I wanna talk about some of these newer. I, I called these out already, but we're actually gonna delve into those just a little bit, so you know whether to pay much attention to them or not, at least at this point. So this was a title of a paper back in 1995, which I love because food allergies, we could spend an hour here just talking about food allergies and atopic dermatitis and still not have enough time to really cover this territory and do it justice. Well, how in the world are you, am I, going to do that in a 15 or 20 minute visit? Especially when it's a loaded game, isn't it? Because parents are desperate for control of atopic dermatitis. They feel guilty, number one, because you or I have rightly, in, in many cases, told them that there's a genetic component to it. So they're like, oh man, I gave this to my kid. That's just awful. And their kid is losing sleep. They're scratching. They're getting infections. They're being ostracized sometimes because they're wearing their disease, unlike some other conditions. So parents desperately want to have some element of control because I know all of your patients, mine too, the parents will say, you know, I just can't figure it out. Sometimes it's a good day, sometimes it's a bad day, and I can't tell why. I've wondered about food, but I don't know. Uh, and so this paper sort of summarized that, is, is atopic dermatitis an allergic disease? Are the food allergies really causal, or is it a disease with allergies? Are they just along for the ride? And that's a hugely different way to think about things, isn't it? And so I want to talk a bit about that. Well, it is a complicated story, and parents do want some, some element of control. It's kind of like acne, right? Uh, parents, again, want some element of control, in this case, of their teenagers. And so how we've, I imagine most of you see acne from time to time. I imagine from time to time parents have wondered or asked you about the relationship between diet and acne. And they then, if they go one step further and ask you about a specific food, has anyone, raise your hand please, if anyone in this room has ever had a parent say, I'm just certain it's due to the Brussels sprouts. I know it for a fact. 
So really? Okay, you're kidding. Never, not possible. Uh, it's always, it's got to be the chocolate, right? It's got to be the sweets. It's got to be the junk food. It's got to be the pizza. They're trying to exercise some control when it has not a wit to do with the acne, right? Unless they're taking that pizza and doing this, it is probably not related. So this sort of is a similar sort of tie-in to eczema, though it's certainly more real in eczema. Uh, when I left training from residency, I was convinced I worked primarily with an adult dermatologist. His name's John Hannafin. He's down at Oregon Health Sciences University. The very first diagnostic criteria for eczema are the Hannafin criteria, so he knows a thing or two about eczema. And he saw just adults, severe adults sent from all over the world to see him. And he really didn't find, and we didn't find when we tested them, many times when you would actually do a controlled food challenge and see flares of their eczema. So I left there thinking that food really was almost never related to atopic dermatitis flares. I then went and did a pediatric dermatology fellowship uh, with a woman named Amy Paller in Northwestern. And she's kind of like the John Hannafin um, for, for children in terms of her knowledge about this condition. And surely we had a, a, a number of kids, um, uh, it was a vast minority, but a number of kids who there was, you know, you take away eggs from the diet and that baby did better. You take away milk from the diet, that baby did better. So it, I kind of came, my pendulum swung a little bit to where I'll try to communicate we are today, or at least I am. So is, is it an allergic condition? Well, if you do a panel of RAS tests or a prick test in a patient with moderate to severe eczema, about one out of three is going to have a positive result, right? So wow, 33%, that's, clearly that's a big deal. This is the trick, is the vast, vast minority of that 33%. So you've already lopped off 60, uh, 67% who food allergy testing is negative, and the negatives with testing are pretty good. They're not perfect, but false negatives with RAS testing or prick testing are pretty uncommon. The false positive issue is the one that can get us because you've got that 33% where you've got a panel of tests or you've got some prick tests that say, aha, it's eggs. And then you take away the eggs and nothing happens. The patient does not get better. The eczema does not get better. That happens a lot. So false positives are pretty vexing. And I would encourage you not to randomly test or do panel testing just because you've got a patient with, with bad eczema if the history doesn't take you there. If the history takes you there for sure, do it. But because of that issue of false positives, you do a random list, you're going to get a bunch of positives sometimes. And then you've already got this patient who the parents are struggling to feed them and let them gain weight um, because they're so worried about uh, food allergy. And then you superimpose that, these tests that say they're allergic, when sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. So the best test is a history and follow that history to testing uh, in reality, and then follow those tests um, with um, caution, um, and you will you will you will uh, end up in the best place. So, mild to moderate patients—that's the vast majority of patients you're going to see. Ask the question, take the history about foods for sure. But when you get that history I alluded to a little bit ago, I don't know. I think it may be strawberries, maybe it's eggs. I don't know. Clearly, they haven't seen a reproducible direct connection between that food and a flare. They're just wondering. The patients who say, oh, yeah, my, I gave my son eggs and his lips blew up, yeah, they're, they're, they're allergic. You do not give them eggs or you explore that further. But it's when it's that back and forth, I don't know, just frustration speaking. Just be very cautious and treat the skin first. Do everything that you do that we'll talk a bit about this afternoon to treat the skin and that is the best test of all when it's appropriate. Because you see those patients leave, go, do the things you teach them how to do appropriately for the skin, and have them not change a thing with their diet. Then if they come back a lot better, it's just amazing how those allergy questions just sort of drift to the background. Because they've seen it. They've seen the patient get better without changing their diet. And that's super helpful, I think. It doesn't always, it's not always so easy but that's what I would encourage you to do. The National Institutes of Health put out food allergy guidelines in 2010. Um, they're beautiful. They've got a little digested version. You can Google or, or find that link, and they are, it's like a 70, 80, 90-page document, so who's going to read that um, in depth? Well, they've got a digested version for providers like us. They've got a digested version for parents. 
In it, they talk about what we've just talked about, about food allergy testing, what it, what, what it means, what it doesn't mean. They talk about things like IgG testing for foods, which can leave you with an incredibly long list of food allergies, which aren't allergies at all in general. Uh, they're normal reactions to foods. Um, I have uh, students from a naturopathic school join me in my clinic on Fridays um, here in Seattle. It's a wonderful school here called Bastyr. Um, and they join me and I learn so much from them and they learn from me. One of our fundamental differences is our focus on food first as opposed to food after you've done all of the appropriate skin care. Um, and so I would encourage you in that direction if you can. So these are the NIH guidelines from 2010 in terms of what they say about food. Suggest that children less than five years of age with moderate to severe AD be considered for food allergy evaluation for milk, egg, peanut, wheat, and soy if at least one of the following conditions is met. Persistent AD despite optimized management and topical therapy and a reliable history of an immediate reaction after ingestion of food. So one of those two, pursue it. If one of those two or, or, or neither of those two are present, think perhaps first of uh, good skin care and second of allergy care. Never dismiss it out of hand. I don't think you would, but I've seen many of my colleagues, and I'm, maybe I used to, I don't know, I hope not, but never say, oh, it's never food. That's ridiculous. Apart from being rude, um, that, that's also dismissing something that parents oftentimes have read a lot about from good sources. They've read that food allergy is related to one, one out of three patients with eczema, just like we talked about. And so you dismiss them, they're going to dismiss you. They should. I hope they dismiss me if I don't take their concerns seriously. But I'll say, you know what, let's just put that on the back burner. If you come back in a month and you've done A, B, C, D, all the skincare things we've talked about, and you're no better, I'm right there with you. Let's test. Let's do what we need to do. Uh, but that's how I would encourage you to approach that. So is uh, food allergies and eczema, is it a cause? Is it a trigger? Is it unrelated? The answer is yes. That's super helpful. You're welcome. Um, patient history trumps all. Um, infants uh, focus on eggs and milk. That's a vast majority in infants of the relevant food allergens. As you get older, those change. Um, sensible testing can be a roadmap, um, but it's not the end-all, be-all for the reasons we talked about. Um, so I would just encourage you to think about it in that way. Well, what about peanut allergy prevention? Well, we talked about where this came from. It's just, to those of you who don't know the story, it's just fascinating. Um, peanut allergy obviously has been increasing in, in uh, prevalence just about everywhere, but not everywhere. Uh, and there's an allergist in the United Kingdom named Gideon Lack who is a specialist in this condition, and he's gone all around the world talking, comes to the United States, he says, oh, you guys are seeing skyrocketing rates of peanut allergy, and we all nod our heads. Goes to Australia, skyrocketing rates of peanut allergy, we all nod our heads. Goes to Israel, you guys are seeing skyrocketing rates of peanut allergy, and they're like, mm, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, some expert you are. And so that's because they're not. And so he's like, oh, well, that's interesting. It must be genetic, right? Um, you know, we think there's a genetic component to most everything, including eczema. Well, surely there is to peanut allergy as well. So he goes back to the United Kingdom and does a study of Israeli emigres to the United Kingdom. Same genetics, but different environment. And their rates of peanut allergy were the same as the native Englanders, Britons. I don't know what that word would be, but those guys. Um, and so he was like, well, okay, it's not genetics. What's up with that? And so we went back to Israel and looked into it, and as many of you may know by now, there is a teething biscuit called Bamba. You can get it here in the United States. I think you can get it on Amazon. What can't you get on Amazon? Thank you. Um, um, and it's made of peanut, right? A teething biscuit. So what age are these babies taking this peanut? Very early. So they're getting very early dietary exposure to peanut, and their gut is seeing peanut processing, their immune system is seeing it through their gut, not through their skin. So there's peanut in just about everything. So you get peanut protein in all sorts of products that even if a parent says, how can I have a positive RAS test or prick test a peanut? My baby's never had peanut. Well, that's because it was exposed through their skin. And the idea now is that if you're exposed to an allergen through your skin at an early formative age, you can be more likely to develop allergy. Whereas if you're exposed to that same allergen through the gut at an early formative age, you're more likely to develop tolerance. And so that's where this whole story came from, this incredibly cool epidemiologic tale 
um, to where a randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trial was done, published in the New England Journal like four or five years ago now. It was the most downloaded article in the New England Journal in about the last 20 years. This is an incredibly hot topic, interesting topic, uh, frightening topic, life-threatening topic, right? And so the National Institutes of Health said, you know, we better get back together and figure this out because we put out our guidelines in 2010 saying nothing about this. And so a group was reconvened um, this um, past year. Um, This paper was published in 2017. There were uh, three dermatologists. I was happy to be one of those. There were 17 allergists, so it was very weighted towards allergy, as it should have been. There were pediatricians. There were uh, patient advocates around a table saying, what are we going to do with this? And this is what we did with it. So basically subdivided the recommendations into three groups. If you don't have eczema or food allergy, then age-appropriate introduction to peanut protein, right? So that's not a handful of peanuts for your six-month-old, right? So that's, if it's going to be introduced, it's gonna be emulsified peanut butter, it's gonna be a bomba teething biscuit that that emulsifies um, with contact. So um, age-appropriate introduction. Mild to moderate eczema, then introduce around six months. Um, Severe eczema, that was the study population, right? In this New England Journal paper, they either had severe eczema, and the definition of severe eczema was quibbled about a lot, and that matters, um, or egg allergy, or both. And so this paper that came out this past year trying to guide us all in how to approach this um, basically broke down like this, and you've got this in your handout. Um, But if you've got severe eczema or egg allergy or both, And let's start on the right side with prick test. And you do a prick test and you have a zero to two millimeter wheel, assuming normal uh, positive controls. Then the risk of reaction is low um, and the options are to introduce peanut at home uh, or supervise feeding in the office based on your preference and the parent's preferences. On the other hand, if it's a moderate reaction, three to seven millimeters, the risk of reaction varies from moderate to high and the options are either supervised feeding in the office or an open food challenge. Uh, that's what OFC is in a specialized facility. At Seattle Children's, we have uh, a high-risk allergy clinic where people can come when there is this degree of concern. And then if you're over eight millimeters by prick testing, then you're probably already allergic to peanut and you continue evaluation and management as if you are allergic to peanut with appropriate avoidance as we would have done previously. Flip over to the RAS test if that's what's more available. One of the issues we had around the table was if we start mass recommending every patient with severe eczema see an allergist, well, there just aren't enough allergists around, right? Our wait times around here are awful, um, and I imagine they are where you are. And if you all of a sudden make a mass recommendation that a huge uh, number of people see an allergist when they previously hadn't, that's going to overwhelm the system. And so RAS tests are more democratic. Um, uh, We can do them in our clinic. You can probably do them where you are as well. And so what to do with that? If your RAS test is negative, the risk of reaction is low. um, And that's this little box right here. And over 90% will have, um, uh, be just fine uh, with skin prick testing. And the options are to introduce peanut at home or supervise feeding in the office again, per your comfort, per the parent's comfort. Conversely, if you have a positive RAS test, um, then refer to a specialist, uh, presumably an allergist, for more uh, appropriate conservative uh, treatment. Well, this is a slide that I show you that was uh, drawn by my nephew. Now, you might say, oh, a dermatologist, allergist? Well, no, he's an organic farmer. Uh, My nephew... um, was around the table with his father, my brother-in-law. His father's a family doc up in Mount Vernon, Washington, about an hour north of here. And we're just talking about this scenario, just encapsulated by that one slide. Is eczema an allergic disease or is it a disease with allergies? And we talked about, you know, what, what you know, how do we do it? We, we tear our hair out in the clinics trying to explain to parents everything we just talked about when they're so invested and, and just so much, have so much invested in this idea of allergy. And I asked Blake if he could put together a slide that would sort of encapsulate that. He's like, oh, sure. 
And so with apologies to Gary Larson of Farside, those of you might recommend ginger, blah, 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 ginger. Um, that's where this roughly came from. But what parents are told, Mrs. Smith, Joey has eczema, it's very common. We do not know the cause. It can usually be safety effectively managed. It's very important that he avoids irritants and moisturize his skin. Rarely it can be related to food allergies. What parents hear, Mrs. Smith, Joey has eczema, and blah, 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 it's related to food allergies. And that's sort of where we are oftentimes, is, is parents uh, don't necessarily want to or are even sometimes able to hear this message. So I think having this sort of uh, judicious approach uh, and walking parents through it to the extent that you can is going to lead to better outcomes. What about the atopic march? Well, that's the atopic march that we talked a bit about. Um, food allergies, eczema as a baby, asthma as a child, seasonal allergies as an adult, and some kids just march right through that into adulthood and are lucky enough to check off all three boxes. Well, what about the details of that march? Um, can you prevent it? Uh, does it happen in everyone? Uh, does it, is it significant when it does happen? So this was a cohort study using this peer registry. Peer registry, the peer registry and the apples registry are related to tacrolimus and pimecrolimus. Um, brand names, I'm probably not supposed to use them, but if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's sort of useless, isn't it? Um, so protopic and elidel. Uh, topical calcineurin inhibitors that have been around around 17 years. Um, we've used them for patients with eczema um, around five or six years after they came out. It was clear that they were being used in kids under two years of age for whom they've never been approved. And so the FDA came out with a black box warning saying, don't use this in babies because there's a concern that if you use too much in a baby who's going to absorb more of anything you put on their skin relative to their weight, that they might get systemic levels of the tacrolimus, systemic levels of the pimecrolimus. Well, we know from our cancer wards that using tacrolimus to prevent rejection in patients for year after year after year aiming for something above a trough level, so a good systemic level for year after year after year, essentially suppressing your immune system for year after year after year in the same way, is inevitably going to lead to an increased risk of cancer. And that's what it does. However, if you use these patients, use these products topically, if you use them appropriately, you do not get sustained drug levels, then that's not, that shouldn't be a concern. Well, that's what the black box warning was about. They were being overused in babies for whom they were never approved, and there was concern that that black box warning uh, was real. Well, the peers group, um, peers registry is patients who've used pimecrolimus over time. The apples registry, patients who've used tacrolimus over time, and following them longitudinally. Do they get cancer? Do they get lymphoma? Do they get skin cancer more than patients who don't use these products? And so we've got this wonderful database now, uh, which is an unfortunate consequence of that black box warning, uh, which it's not our topic right now, but I'll say has not found any outcome of cancer of concern now 17, no, seven, 18 years after these products first started being used. So super encouraging, super useful to know, but just wanted you in this case to know that that's where this registry came from. So what they found with regard to this atopic march was if atopic dermatitis started after eight years of age, there seemed to be a lower risk of developing those other comorbidities, seasonal allergies, prevalent asthma. So the earlier onset eczema, the higher the risk of developing these other atopic march comorbidities. Well, then the question was, what if we treat the eczema really early? Can we prevent the development of asthma? Can we prevent the development of hay fever? How amazing would that be? And that was the question asked here in this study. Um, this was a three-year double-blind trial of infants, three months of age to 18 months of age, treated with this product that was never approved for that age group, right? This is, this is uh, pimecrolimus used in these infants and followed over time. Well, it was in the middle of this study that that black box warning came out in 2005. So what do you think happened to that study population? A fair number dropped out. And so the conclusions in terms of the primary outcome, can you treat eczema early and prevent the atopic march, are really confounded by that dropout rate. So we can't really go there uh, or where they wanted to go with this, but I thought it was still useful uh, in terms of some of the data that was generated. So what were they doing? There were 1,000 infants. They were treating to either pimecrolimus, the non-steroidal topical calcineurin inhibitor, or a vehicle. 
and they treated them um, uh, for the study period and then an open label for additional three years, those who stayed in the study. Uh, they had a rescue protocol, and um, they said, hey, okay, what happens with these atopic comorbidities? Well, they pretty much confirmed that they do develop in roughly the amounts and order in which we had suspected. Food allergy, about 15% here, with the big fat asterisks that we've already talked about. Asthma in 10%, rhinitis in about one out of five, and conjunctivitis in about 14%. Um, the severity of the eczema, we already talked about the younger you get the eczema, the more likely you develop these things. The more severe your eczema, the more likely you develop these things. So those are things to think about when you counsel parents who are going to ask you, is my child going to get asthma? Um, if it's a child with just a little bit of eczema that gets better with some moisturizers, probably not. Uh, you don't know for sure, but you can at least do your best to reassure that parent on that day with that question in that child. If you've got a patient who's just um, head-to-toe eczema, they're six months of age, um, you, know, you need to be a little bit more guarded and expect potentially risk numbers like these. Can eczema be prevented? We just talked about trying to prevent the atopic comorbidities. What about preventing eczema? Well, here's some really interesting data in the last couple years. So this was a study that looked at this birth cohort of nearly 2,000 infants, looked at transepidermal water loss measured at two days, two months, and six months. And they measured the filaggrin status, which is the, the gene which is associated uh, with risk of atopic dermatitis and other comorbidities. And I, 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 we don't have enough time to go into this in detail, but I think thinking about filaggrin, first of all, I don't think testing for filaggrin and just randomly for patients with atopic dermatitis helps us much and is worth the money yet. But I will say this, if you've got a patient who is in front of you, a parent who's really invested in this allergy story, and you, based on your history and your evaluation, don't think it's likely allergy. You don't think it's likely that the egg is driving the eczema. Again, they may have an egg allergy, but is it driving the eczema? Then what you can tell them is, if you've got a filaggrin mutation, that basically filaggrin is almost like a seal in your skin, right? If you don't have enough of that seal, you don't have enough of caulk, that caulk in your skin, we'll call filaggrin caulk for now, well, then you're going to lose water, right? The transepidermal water loss is going to go out, so you're going to get dry. That makes sense. But you can also say, well, what else happens? Things go in. More food allergens are going to go in. We talked a bit ago about exposure of an allergen through the skin leads to allergy, through the gut leads to tolerance. Well, if you've got more cracks and open skin, you're going to get more exposure to allergens, right? And so you can tell parents that, yes, you may have, your child may have this filaggrin mutation, you can get rid of the egg or the milk or what have you. You're not getting rid of that deficiency of caulk, right? So they're still going to get dry. They're still going to get itchy and red. They're still going to get their eczema. It's really hard to take an allergen away and make all of what goes along with eczema go away. And so I've sometimes, not everyone, that's a long kind of tortured discussion, but with some parents who think mechanistically and really want to hear about the why, since there's so many whys we cannot give them with eczema, thinking that way and explaining that way is, has helped a few, I think. So this study showed that the lowest quartile of transepidermal water loss, the kids that got the least dry, had the lowest risk of getting atopic dermatitis. Again, this is two days of age, right? So if they're losing water at a decreased rate at two days of age, it predicted they were less likely to get eczema. Well, then maybe if we just moisturize the heck out of them from basically uh, right after their APGAR scores are measured, uh, we might be able to prevent eczema, right? How cool is that? That sounds crazy, but it is possibly true. This is a study done, two studies. The one, uh, the top one, Eric Simpson, is down. He works uh, with Dr. Hannafin down at Oregon Health Sciences um, in Portland. Um, and he did a study that asked that question. He had 108 high-risk atopic newborns and randomized them either to just emollient um, or uh, no use of emollient. And they started in the first three weeks of life, and they followed them for six months and just asked the question, you know, at six months of age, was there any difference in those two groups in terms of risk of eczema. And there was. The patients who got moisturized like crazy from the get-go had a decreased risk of developing eczema at that admittedly short time period. 
Now, there's a, the paper below is a Japanese cohort that was very similar study, asked the same question and got more or less the same result. Moisturize early, less atopic dermatitis later. How cool is that? How cost-effective is that? If you can just moisturize, you know, Vaseline, look at this study. This is a study that asked, you know, the QAL, quality-adjusted life years. So the coin of the realm of cost-effectiveness, right? If you use petrolatum from very early on, how much money is that going to save in terms of all of the things that stem forward with eczema? And the kind of metric there, the quality-adjusted life year, in this case was $353 per quality-adjusted life year. And now, is that good? Well, yeah, uh, less than $37,000 per quality-adjusted life year is generally considered to be a reasonable intervention. So that's a little bit better, isn't it? This isn't, doesn't even consider if you can then potentially prevent asthma and food allergies. We talked about we don't know that yet. But we, it's not too unreasonable to consider. Uh, so just imagine it's going to go down to like a penny per quality adjusted life year or something like that. So um, just remember that with all of the confusion with atopic dermatitis that exists, there is no confusion about moisturizing. There is none. Now there's confusion about bathing and how you do that with moisturizing, and we'll talk about that this afternoon. But moisturizing is an unambiguous good for patients with atopic dermatitis. Why? Because their transepidermal water loss is through the roof. Uh, and you're just trying to, to stem that tide. So of the newly associated ones, which we mentioned earlier, which ones are real? Which one deserve you guys to sort of pause and think, either think about or talk about directly with your patients? Well, ADHD, I think, is one. And I, ha I haven't thought that for too long. When this first idea first came out, it was 2009, and there was this idea that there was this uh, hypersensitivity component that might explain these inflammatory cytokines that can be related to neuropsychiatric outcomes and eczema, and maybe that's how you tie the two together. They did a study that said, oh, wow, look at this. Patients with atopic dermatitis are more likely to develop ADHD. They then looked at that same database and controlled for sleep loss, and that association went away. I'm like, oh, okay, probably not. Well, there have now been multiple studies since that time in the United States population slash genetics, in a Scandinavian population slash genetics, in a Japanese population slash genetics that have shown this same positive association. And so I'm, I'm starting independent and controlling for sleep. So I'm starting to think, I've long past starting to think that this is potentially a real association. These are just a few other studies that I don't think we need to belabor the details. The gestalt is that uh, more atopic dermatitis, if you have atopic dermatitis, you have a greater risk of developing ADHD, and there does seem to be a dose dependence, to kind of borrow that pharmacology phrase, in that the more severe the eczema, the higher the risk. Um, and so that's just something that I think is worth remembering. Um, this was the Danish trial that showed the same thing. Um, so just different populations showing more or less, slightly different numbers, the same result. Um, this was a Taiwanese uh, database, a closed database, lots of good information. Um, AD diagnosed at less than two years of age, a greater risk of ADHD uh, and autism spectrum disorder. That has not been reproduced anywhere that I know of. So that's a really loaded topic, right? And an important topic that I bring up in this paper because it's related to the ADHD neuropsychiatric outcome. But I do not bring that up at all or even mention that. If I'm asked about it, that's my answer, is that we just don't know uh, as far as autism, autism spectrum disorder is related at all. And that's as far as I go with that. So what's the take-home? Be prepared to discuss this. I'm just shocked these days, the questions that I get, um, that basically PhD-level questions just about every other clinic about uh, the nature of eczema and inflammation and cytokines. And so we have to all be on our games in a way we, uh, we probably should have been before Google, but, but maybe weren't uh, pressed as much. Um, but that second bullet point gets at what I just mentioned with the autism spectrum disorder. Meter so as not to overwhelm. 
again, we got 15, 20 minutes. We, you know, barely get through the discussion of bathing and moisturizing reasonably. Certainly not food allergies in that time. And then we're talking about autism and ADHD. That's going to scare the, you know, what out of a parent who came to, you know, ask what the best moisturizer was. So I think we have to remember that. Uh, and we have to gauge where that parent is and what they can and should hear. Um, but mostly be prepared in our own minds to say, okay, I've got this kid who the parents are telling me, the teachers are uh, saying he never pays attention in school, he's fidgety, and, well, of course, he doesn't sleep very well. I've got a great explanation for that. Maybe, right? Maybe it is he's just tired, uh, she just isn't getting enough sleep, they just can't focus at school, it may have everything to do with sleep loss. But at least in the back of your mind, even if you don't bring it up, have a competing diagnosis that might be treated differently to explain that and maybe delve into it further. That's, that's how I would encourage you to use that data. Anemia, even less strong. And the only reason I bring it up, I, I wouldn't, unless a parent asks you about this, I would just forget it. But here again, you've got a patient in front of you who is tired all the time. Maybe looking a little drawn and a little has some pallor to their face. One of the cent- one of the minor diagnostic criteria of atopic dermatitis is centrifacial pallor, built right into the diagnosis of the disease. Well, maybe that's all it is, but maybe it's not, right? Maybe if there's some other reason to think this child could be anemic, it may be worth going down this road. Um, but this is really for us to think about to avoid kind of having our diagnostic myopia and say, oh, I know, why you, I know why you look pale. I know why you're tired. You're just not sleeping. Well, maybe not. So I think that's pretty much all I wanted to say about that. So AD and obesity. Um, it's funny, when this data first came out, it sort of took me by surprise. So this is the exact opposite of what I typically worry about in my patients with bad eczema. They're usually kids who are not gaining weight. They're not growing. Uh, they, uh, sometimes it's due to iatrogenic malnutrition from food fear, right? All the things we talked about. There are a lot of reasons it can be so, but that's my worry is underweight, under, uh, not overweight. So when this came out, it was a bit of a surprise, and it still sort of, I bring it up again, kind of like the anemia for you to know about if you're asked about. I'm not so sure it's how real it is just yet. You can see that forest plot on the right there. Um, you can see some of these, um, these confidence intervals are obese themselves, which never gives you a lot of confidence. Uh, you can see this, uh, these, uh, these uh, results are kind of jumping this line of significance, some yes, some no, which ultimately tells me uh, I just don't know. So as far as this is concerned, there are lots of ways to think this is a reasonable concept, right? Especially as kids get older, they're sometimes feeling uh, like they don't want to go outside and play. They're ostracized from their friends because of their eczema. They stay inside. They're not, they, they're more sedentary. There are lots of reasons to think this could be so. Um, so keep it in mind, but that's probably about all I would do at this juncture. In contrast to psoriasis, um, I won't go into it. Obviously, it's not what we're here to talk about, but psoriasis and metabolic syndrome very good literature to show that those two things are real. And uh, so I think it's a nice kind of contradistinction here between eczema, I'm not sure, psoriasis. Uh, definitely keep this in mind. So quality of life, a patient of mine made these for me. Um, that, that sucker basically says eczema sucks. Um, and it kind of captures this idea. This is a word cloud uh, uh, generated from patients' Uh, internet usage on forums talking about eczema, and of course, the bigger the font, the more often that phrase was used, and you can see that this is not a welcome affliction. Um, The National Eczema Association, which I would encourage you to avail yourself of their resources, is a terrific group. They've got a lot of online resources for families. They have um, groups that go around the country. Um, there was just an expo in Chicago for any of you that live in the Midwest just this past weekend um, that uh, are patient-focused and, and bring folks for, in from all around the country to talk about eczema, how you treat eczema, um, and just a really, really great group if you're not familiar with them. Their website is national, national eczema, or excuse me, www.eczemacenter.org. I think that's what it is. Or nationaleczema.org, I take it back. Eczemacenter.org is a group in San Diego that actually also is a wonderful resource. 
So they put together, uh, commissioned uh, this um, burden of disease audit is what it was called. It was basically trying to say, you know, how big a deal is this for uh, patients with eczema? Um, and um, they found some very interesting things. Uh, moderate to severe eczema impacts quality of life comparably to conditions that don't look like they belong in this talk, do they, right? Um, that looks like apples and oranges to me too. Um, until I think about what this is capturing, right? It's not capturing mortality. Uh, it's not capturing the medicines they use. It's capturing the impact on their quality of life. If you think about how annoying it is to be bitten by a mosquito and then itch for about six or seven hours, or if you've gotten poison ivy or poison oak and you've itched for a few days, it drives you crazy, right? These kids have that 24-7, all over. And again, these aren't the kids that get better with Vaseline. That's not who I'm talking about. These are the kids with moderate to severe eczema who are losing those 2.1 hours of sleep a night. Imagine your poison ivy 24-7 throughout your childhood. And then think about those numbers and those comparators. And they make a little more sense, right? Sleep loss and itch, that's kind of one of the biggest deals, right? Um, we talked about those numbers earlier. Um, the adult study um, also shows multiple impacts, so it's not just kids who deal with this. This is, um, these numbers always amaze me, right? Recommended hours of sleep. Uh, newborns 12 to 18, infants 14 to 15. That would make a cat jealous. That, those, are, those are impressive numbers. That's like a good week for me in medical school. That, that, that's a lot of sleep. You need a lot, babies need a lot of sleep for their, not their skin, for their health, um, for their parents' sanity, whatever it is, they need a lot of sleep, and they're not getting it when they have severe eczema, and that affects everyone. So how do we deal with it? Um, you know, you can't just knock a kid out, though sometimes that's got some value, and what do I mean by that? So the best treatment for sleep loss is good skin care, is addressing the inflammation. We'll talk about this this afternoon, so I won't belabor it. Uh, but the best treatment is treating the inflammation. Sleep hygiene for the older kids, they're not on their phones or whatever it is, two minutes before they go to sleep, all that stuff you guys know for sure. Sedating antihistamines, we'll talk a bit about it this afternoon. Um, yeah, but they really are mostly just sedating. Antihistamines don't do a lot for the itch of eczema. That's a big fat myth. So a lot of times parents will, you kind of go through everything we've gone through, and then they're walking out the door and they're like, oh, but what are you going to give me for my itch? Meaning, where's my antihistamine? And, and that's not everything I say, what am I going to do for the itch? Everything we just talked about for the last 20 minutes is what we're going to do for your itch. The antihistamines don't do much other than knock kids out. So if you've got a comorbidity, if you've got allergic rhinoconjunctivitis, beautiful. If you've got urticaria or hives, beautiful. Bring on the antihistamines. If it's just for the itch of eczema, the only virtue I see is in kids who cannot get to sleep and they're scratching themselves so much, then you truly knock them out. And it's, that sounds awful. Uh, and this is exactly the conversation I've had with parents and I say, that sounds awful. But you are sort of interrupting that cycle, that itch-scratch cycle. And if you allow them to sleep better, and I know all of you have had patients who the parents have said, you know, I put them to bed and they look pretty good. I wake them up in this mess. Their, their sheets have blood everywhere. They're awful. So if you can stop that, you have knocked them out, yes, but you have also knocked out their itch to a certain extent by having them sleep. Melatonin is an area of recent investigation. That Taiwanese trial that you see published in JAMA Pediatrics suggested it helps. My experience is not as encouraging. So does, a, does it go away? So this was one of the most depressing final papers in the abstract, if you Google this. Uh, so this, this is, when I talked about metering information so as not to overwhelm parents, this is the conclusion of a paper that I do not ever give them. So they're like, basically, patients come and parents come into you and all they want to know is, what, what's the calendar day that my child's going to grow out of this? Because they've heard, that, oh, my child's going to grow out of this, right? When, well, when? When's that going to happen? And of course, we don't know. And this conclusion in this paper was that it's likely a lifelong illness. Isn't that reassuring counsel? And where it came from is they looked again at this same database that I talked to you a bit about, the Peers group. I think this was Peers. 
and sort of asked the question of patients with eczema at 20 years of age, so college age, how many went at least six months without filling a prescription? And it was less than half in this group. Now, this is a defined population that was put on a non-steroidal agent at a fairly young age in many cases. So you're selecting maybe for a more severe group. There are all sorts of confounders here. But the point, reason I put this in is not to say take away from this talk that light, eczema is lifelong. Everyone in this room has had patients who it really did seem to kind of go away. Um, but rather to counsel the parents that moisturization is going to be a good thing forever. This child is probably going to have sensitive skin forever. I had eczema when I was little. I can't even remember the last time I had an itchy rash in an eczema location. But if I put a wool sweater on, I itch immediately. That's the filaggrin, right? That's a constitutional part of my skin that I'm not growing out of. I don't get rashes anymore, but I still have hyper irritability in my skin, and that's not going anywhere. So I think those are the things to kind of think about as you counsel parents who just want to hear from you when their child is going to grow out of this. So in summary, um, AD is a skin disease with a propensity towards allergies. Moisturize early and often. You'll never go wrong doing that. Consider peanut allergy prevention in severe AD patients and ask about sleep loss and potential effects, including focus, attention, uh, considering alternative explanations to eczema for those outcomes. Thanks for your attention. So I think, maybe I read these now. Do you use cyclosporin for severe atopic flares and psoriasis in pediatric population? Would you review dosing and screening guidelines? Sure. Um, so cyclosporin is a drug that I have. I'm just going to kind of just answer this question in a very bullet. Um, I've probably got about 10 patients on it right now. I just see kids, remember? Most of the kids are skewed to very younger ages. So I use it. I use it a fair bit. I use it in patients with severe eczema who I've met the following conditions. And this is the guideline speaking, the guideline part of me speaking. Uh, optimized topical treatment, right? You, they're, they're not bathing and moisturizing in all sorts of crazy ways that are making them worse. They're not steroid phobic and not telling you about it. That's just a terrifically vicious cycle, isn't it? is you've got a patient who you give their, you know, your hydrocortisone 2.5% or your trimcinolone, all the stuff we'll talk a bit about later today. And you send them home and they come back and they're worse. So in your mind is like, oh gosh, maybe we better give them something stronger. So here's your mometazone or your clobetazole. I don't know what you do, but ratchet it up. When maybe the reason that it's worse is they thought that trimcinolone you gave them, are you crazy? They're, that's a steroid. What are you thinking? And so they're steroid phobic, but didn't necessarily articulate that to you. And so your intervention, my intervention, our intervention of going stronger is the worst thing to do. So explore that first before you ever go to anything stronger. Are they afraid of steroids? If so, why? Can you disabuse them of that notion? If not, what are your alternatives? Maybe give them a non-steroidal product like the tacrolimus. Oh, by the way, here's that black box warning, warning about cancer. So rarely do I find that a balm for steroid phobia. Uh, yet, you, you can, I use it all the time. So you can get there, but you need to be careful how you, how you think about it and what, you, what these parents are going to hear. Um, so optimize topical therapy. Make sure they're doing what you want them to be doing, how they're doing it. And then make sure that they need it, right? Um, maybe if you just do an easy score or a score at all of the severity indices, their number's not that high. You're like, oh, that, that, they don't need that. That's not necessary. Think about that quality of life piece, right? Are they going out? Are they not playing with their kid, with their friends? Are they losing sleep? Are they getting lots of infections? There are other reasons to kind of think things to incorporate into your decision about treatment uh, and whether or not it's worthy of something so severe. We'll talk a bit about that later. So yes, I use cyclosporin. Yes, I use it very cautiously. Yes, I monitor blood pressure and labs. I will check, I will see patients, let's say I start them on day one. I would see them, I would recheck labs, uh, I'd check baseline labs and blood pressure, recheck, ba ba recheck labs and blood pressure at two weeks, whether or not I see them, uh, and then see them again for sure and recheck two weeks later. So baseline, two weeks, two weeks. And then if everything's good, I'll sort of relax to maybe every month to two months with cyclosporin. Uh, that's 
absence other comorbidities, renal problems. You know, I wouldn't use it if a patient had renal problems, but things like that. So hope that answers that question. And is this at my discretion to pick which of one of these I want to go to next? Um, do you think prescription barrier repair creams are superior to OTC emollients such as CeraVe, Aveeno, and Petrolatum? In a word, no. <laughs> uh, I do not. Um, so there, there have been studies that have looked at this, right, and, and sort of compared the super expensive barrier repair creams and their intelligent moisturizers and kind of do they do better. No, they don't. They're a lot more expensive. Um, have I had patients who've said, you know, I've tried... Vaseline, I've tried Aquaphor, I've tried all the less expensive, dumb moisturizers. What else you got for me? And I've said, okay, well, there are these other options. And they've came back and said, this is the ticket for me? I have. Um, if I look at the big population, do I think the bang for the buck you get from these versus just plain Vaseline? 60% of my patients are on Medicaid. They can't, I can't use these. Um, so it's not, it's not just my inability to use them that spawns this opinion. It's the literature. But I would say start with Vaseline or a cheaper alternative. And when those fail, it's good to have these alternatives. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad that we have them. Um, let's see, can you comment on the incidence of eczema herpeticum as a comorbidity of atopic dermatitis? Can I push that one back to the afternoon? Um, because it is absolutely, but we're going to not only comment on it, we'll show you some, a case and juxtapose it to a patient with eczema coxsackicum. So we'll talk a bit about that. Is there any literature that support delayed removal of vernix caseosa to decrease risk of atopic dermatitis? a great question, given what we talked about uh, with the issue of early emolliation. And nothing solid, um, in part, I think, because that's such a uh, short time window. I would say, um, can you justify that if you've got a really high-risk infant uh, for atopic dermatitis? Could you justify that if that was something you and the parents wanted to do? Absolutely. It's got a great sort of, you don't have to work hard to come up with a reason that could be a good thing. Is there, can you say, oh, I've got this series of a thousand infants who did versus those who didn't? No. Um, let's see. Do you counsel parents, patients to avoid scented laundry products and cosmetic products? Yeah, I do. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I think of like detergents. It's fun. When I take a history of atopic dermatitis, after foods, the first thing that parents always, again, it's control, right? The first thing they want to go to is like, I've changed laundry detergents, I've done. And I'm like, I, I don't care. That's not what, that's, it's, that's usually, it's, it's like I, I used the acne analogy earlier. It's kind of like when you see a solitary lesion um, that parents think is a bite, who did it? The spider. It's always the spider. Spider, poor spiders. Uh, it's because we're afraid of spiders, right? Arachnophobia drives this poor spiders getting blamed for everything. It's almost never the spider. Uh, so it's, it's just what the parents are kind of focused on and, and invested in because they can control it. That said, fragrance is a common allergen in patients with atopic dermatitis. So if you can eliminate and avoid fragrance products, usually, especially in a baby, I counsel that taking away a fragrance product if you've been using one probably isn't going to help. That patient probably isn't allergic to fragrance at this point, but chances are they might become allergic. So avoiding fragrance products and scented laundry products I, I think is a good idea, yes. Okay, um, how, we have a minute and 13 seconds. How do you respond to parents that say they don't want to put uh, petroleum on their kids because they think it's linked to the same products at using gasoline? I leave the room. Uh, I, I, my FES scores go in the tank because of it, but it's, I think it's worth it. Um, no, I don't do that. But I, I do get frustrated because um, there, it, it, there are just so many other things that are put on that child's skin that are more harmful than petroleum. And there have been um, uh, so many studies done with petroleum products not asking this specific question. So you can't say petroleum, no, how many patients got... I don't know, became flammable. I don't know what they're worried about. Uh, but it, it, it's, we don't have data to back it up, but I, I definitely, I don't fight this battle ever anymore. I've got way too much gray hair, way too little hair to do that anymore. Uh, but because you know, it's not a winning battle, but I will give them my opinion, my honest, unvarnished opinion, and then I'll say, hey, here's some alternatives. There are unpetroleum products, right? So there are lots of things. Well, look in that unpetroleum product and see what else is in there. 
uh, because there's usually other things uh, that kids can get allergic to, whether it's parabens or what have you. So it's always a, a balance, and this is a balance, in my opinion, in favor of uh, big oil. <laughs> uh, let's see. With regards to emollients, we, oh, zero time. Okay, this is a quickie. With regard to emollients, which is better, petroleum products or coconut oils? So this, we'll talk about this later today. So I basically, four types of moisturizers, more or less. Ointments, super greasy, not very pleasant. Here, 13-year-old girl going to school, put some Vaseline on your face. Yeah, great. It's a lovely moisturizer, uh, but not if it sits on the shelf. So uh, you've got to balance these things. So Vaseline ointments versus white creams. Um, it, basically, I'll ask the question, do you pump them or do you scoop them? And that sort of gets at a certain question. They've now sort of screwed that up for me by being able to pump some creams. But So it doesn't work as, anymore as much as it used to. But uh, lotions, squeeze, pump, most of them have a little alcohol in them. If you've got a lot of open skin from scratching, you put a lotion on, it stings, the child cries, no one wins. So ointments, creams, lotions, oils, not very substantial, but easy to spread. And so I think there is no better What's better is what the child is going to use regularly uh, without a big battle for the parents would be my short answer. So it looks like we're out of time. I will see you a little bit later. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.